Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rosieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Are you confused by all of the different workbench design options available? Are you curious about sharpening saws differently for different types of wood? Are you not sure if you should cut up that wide lumber you've been holding on to? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 7 of the show for July 19th, 2017. It's been quite busy around here. Most of my free time has been spent working on the cabin, which is almost completely dried in. We're just waiting for a couple of windows that we had to reorder to come in. And then uh, once we get those installed, we should be pretty much completely dried in. But uh, this week, I really have to focus on getting ready for a class that I'm teaching on Saturday. I was informed by uh, the coordinator that the class is full, so I, I have to buckle down and prepare the materials for the class this week. We're going to be building a sliding lid candle box in the class and uh, we only have a, a day to do it, so I'm hoping we can finish them, but uh, you know, I think we're going to have to rely on some power tools to do so. The, uh, the class is primarily designed to teach hand-cut dovetails, so I think if we can get the boxes dovetailed and glued by lunchtime, then we should be able to at least mostly finish the box. Uh, we can do some of the other work on, on the bandsaw to speed things up a bit, but maybe a stretch to finish it up completely in one day. So I still haven't gotten back out into the shop since we last spoke. As I mentioned in the last episode, it's pretty much been all hands on deck working on the cabin recently. So the woodworking has more or less been put on hold for me for now. I did get some new hook knife blades from Dell Stubbs up at Pinewood Forge. Uh, I ordered these back in February or March. I can't really remember, but uh, they finally arrived and they are really sweet knives, but you know, I'm really anxious to get some handles on them and try them out, but unfortunately it's unlikely that I'll get around to putting handles on them for a while since for the most part all my free time currently is being spent working on the cabin. So uh, that's just one more project that's going to continue to tease me for a bit until I can get some time to get back out into the shop. So I do have a new patron this week. Thanks to William Elliott for signing up to support the show over on Patreon. And also, again, continued thanks for to Arkadiusz Tchaikowski, Bill Warnock, Krista Kay, Lawrence Polinski, and Jeff Skiles for your continued support over on Patreon. And if you want to become a patron of the show, you can do so by going over to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash brfinewoodworking. And if you pledge $3 a month or more, you'll get access to a once-a-month patron-only episode of the podcast as my special way of saying thanks. The last Patron Extra Show was posted on June 30th, and if you sign up to become a patron at $3 a month or more, you'll get access to that show as well as other past and future Patron Extra Shows for as long as you remain a patron. On the next, on the next Patron Extra Show, I'm going to be talking about finding inspiration in unexpected places. So if you're a patron, head on over to the Patreon community page and let me know what kind of unexpected places you've found inspiration for your projects. Got some feedback this week from our new patron, William Elliott. 
And William says, concerning power tools in the hand tool shop, and he's referring to episode three of the podcast, your commentary was very helpful. Thanks for your thoughts. A case can be made for the shopsmith in a hand tool shop. The idea might be contrarian, but the shopsmith with important upgrades is inexpensive and generally available. With a small space, you get a lathe, drill press, bandsaw, power planer, table saw, and joiner. Though not as excellent as today's standalone power tools for the occasional use, it suits me just fine. I'm a committed hand tool guy, but from time to time, firing up the shopsmith works well. So thank you for that feedback, William. Excellent suggestion. You know, I actually, uh, years ago, did consider um, a shopsmith just for, like what you said, you know, just to have something for those times when you either got a lot of lumber to prepare or you're doing something where you could really use a little bit of help, but, you know, you you don't want to have an entire shop full of of big machines and you don't have a whole lot of space to dedicate. Um, And I think it is a good idea. You know, it's a good suggestion for folks with not a lot of space or who primarily use hand tools. But like you said, you know, once in a while could really use a little bit of help. Um, and you know, these days I don't, I don't worry about it too much anymore because I, I have access to the machines in the school shop. So for the most part, I, I have access to, um, a fully equipped machine shop. Um, but you know, it is certainly, uh, something to consider, uh, if you're primarily hand tools, but you know, you want a little help once in a while, or, you know, you need a lathe or a bandsaw and you don't want to, you don't have the space or the money to, to spring for giant standalone tools. So great suggestion, William. Thanks for the feedback. So let's get into the mailbox. Our first question comes from Ken Fisher. Ken says, I was very happy to find your podcasts and have been listening and learning. Your videos were a huge inspiration to me when I started woodworking two years ago. I've set my shop up as a hand tool only shop and have a modest collection of basic tools. I'm now at a point where I understand and can do basic techniques. I'm having trouble when it comes to finding projects. It seems like they're either geared toward very basic beginners or very experienced woodworkers. Would you have any suggestions for more intermediate level projects? Would you be able to discuss what you consider fundamental hand tool skills and what you think a good progression through those skills might be? And one last question what would you consider to be your top five or so hand tool woodworking books? Thank you for the time and effort you put in the videos and podcasts. I've learned a lot and very much appreciate it. So Ken, thanks very much for the kind words. I'm glad you enjoy the podcast and that you found the old YouTube videos useful. Um, in terms of intermediate projects. So, you know, it's really hard to recommend a specific project and you know, the, the term intermediate is such a, a broad term and it can mean a lot of different things to different people. And, you know, plus the only one who really knows where your skill level is at is you. And then when you add to that the varied interests of, of different people, you can see that recommending a, a specific project that will be skill level appropriate, plus something that's going to hold your interest um, that you're actually going to want to build can be a real challenge. So my suggestion would be to first consider what you might need for yourself. You know, do you need a side table? Do you need a bench or maybe a dining chair or a cabinet of some sort? If you don't have an immediate need for something, what about somebody you know? Uh, Would they be willing to purchase lumber 
to have you build something for them. You know, it's a good way to be able to build things without having to spend your own money on lumber. Um, or maybe there's something you can use for your shop. Um, you know, in terms, I hate to recommend specific projects again, because I'm not, I don't know where your skill level is and I don't know what your, where your interests lie, but there is one project that I, I do really like teaching to intermediate skill level students. And it's, it's a wall hanging cupboard. Um, and the reason I like it is because it involves a lot of different kinds of joinery. Um, and it also involves a bit of decorative work. So it's a, a, what I would consider a step above your basic introductory level projects. Um, you know, the, the basics of the construction are the same, regardless of the style of the ornamentation that you choose to put on it. Um, but you can alter the style of the piece by changing the types of moldings and, and the type of door panel and such so that you can suit a lot of different tastes and, and give the piece either a very traditional feel or a very contemporary feel. So um, I'm actually going to be building a, a new one for my own shop in the coming months. So, um, you know, that'll be on the blog when I do get around to, to building that. Um, so, you know, maybe you want to keep an eye on the blog and look for that. Um, but again, you know, it's tough to, to recommend a, a specific project just because I don't know really where your exact skill level is um, and and where your interests lie in terms of project types. Um, in terms of fundamental hand tool skills, the two top things to me would be learning to sharpen just about any tool well, um, and then good layout habits and precise sawing. So sharp tools are going to fix just about any problem that you're going to face in woodworking. If a tool isn't working right, nine times out of 10, stopping, stopping what you're doing and sharpening the tool will fix the problem. And the better you get at sharpening, the faster you're going to be able to do it and the more often you're going to do it. So your tools will not get as dull because you won't put off sharpening them as long if it's not a chore to do. So learn to sharpen well and quickly and do it often. And that way, you know, if you're sharpening before you think you need to sharpen, you'll always be working with sharp tools and the chances of you running into a situation where your tools aren't doing what you think they should do or they're fighting you, um, you know, those 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 situations should be uh, much fewer and further between if you're constantly always working with sharp tools. In terms of layout and sawing, if you lay out your joinery precisely, and you can saw your layout lines accurately, you can do just about anything. Um, you know, there's no such thing as a complex angle when you can lay out precisely and saw accurately. You simply lay out the saw cut and you saw to the line. You don't have to worry about odd fence setups and there's no crazy jigs necessary. And the better you get at this, the less adjusting of your saw cuts you'll need to do and the better your joiner will fit and the faster you'll be able to work. So once you can lay out and saw precisely, just about any joinery is a piece of cake because if you can lay it out, you can cut it. Then in terms of books, again, this is a tough one because there are so many books and so many different topics. So it really depends on what you're looking for. Are you looking for project books? Are you looking for technique books? Are you looking for inspiration books? Um, you know, some of my favorites are the Woodwright shop books because they make you think a bit more rather than, you know, just telling you how to do something step by step. Um, you know, you kind of have to use your brain and, and figure out what Roy is 
telling you to do. Uh, plus, you know, they're just a, a really entertaining read. You know, they're not just dull how-to books. If you know Roy's personality, um, you'll understand his books. Um, if you're looking for just a pure skill technique book, Robert Wearing's book, The Essential Woodworker, is a good one. Um, but again, you know, there are a lot of other books that are similar to Wearing's book. So um, something along those lines. If you're looking for design inspiration, I like to look at books of museum collections. Um, you can find these kinds of books in a range of styles from early period furniture to arts and crafts to mid-century modern. Um, you know, I rely on these kind of books heavily for design inspiration and project ideas because I'm very rarely copying something exactly. And for the most part, I never work from commercial plans. I always work up my own design, but I use a lot of these museum books heavily for influence and, and inspiration. Um, so, you know, I'll go through the books and look at pieces that are similar to what I want to build and pick design features from, you know, the different, uh, the different pieces in the book that I like and kind of combine them into one or use those ideas to design my, my piece. Um, one of my favorite books is American Furniture of the 18th Century by Jeffrey Green. And I like this book because it goes through the different furniture periods, but more because he shows the construction methods for each of the pieces, not all the pieces, but he takes several pieces throughout the book and shows you the construction methods and how these pieces were built. So you don't have to sort through a lot of modern joinery methods and try to figure out how to do it by hand because the original pieces he's describing were all built completely by hand. And even if you don't like period furniture, this book is worth owning for every hand tool woodworker because it goes through the details of just about every kind of traditional joinery and how and where it was used through the, the use of these detailed exploded drawings and of actual period furniture. So with this kind of information, you can pretty much take any project in any style and design it in such a way that you can build it with basic hand tools and traditional joinery. Um, and if you do like period furniture, the book's even better. So uh, there, it's got that going for it too. So uh, I hope that helps, Ken, and thanks for your email. So our next question comes from Archie England, and Archie says, Greetings. Do you still use and prefer the Nicholson-style workbench? I was given a beam of 5-inch laminated lumber that's over 20 years old. It's solid, tight, and screaming for a Rubo bench build, but I've been impressed by your bench work. Thanks. So Archie, I do still use my Nicholson bench. Um, I'm actually going to be building a new Nicholson bench because some of my boards on mine are wearing out. And um, when I moved into the new property that, that we're on now, I actually was left behind some uh, some two-inch thick oak boards that would make a, a good new top and aprons for a Nicholson-style bench. So I'm actually going to probably be building a new one in, uh, you know, I don't know, I'm not sure exactly when, but um, but yeah, I still enjoy, I still like the uh, the Nicholson style. I think they're easy to build um, and they work great. But, you know, if you like the Rubo style, if you have lumber that is perfect for the Rubo style, then go for it. Um, you know, there are a ton of workbench design options out there. And the beauty of all these different designs is that they all work. Um, you know, I've worked on everything 
from you know the Roubaix to the Nicholson to traditional Scandinavian style benches um, to you know the the cheap little um, the ones that you can buy from from Woodcraft like the the real small ones that are you know real rickety and, and move all over the place when you try and plane on them. I've worked on them all, um, you know, even even down to a, a Black and Decker workmate, and you know they can all be made to work. So it just really comes down to your design aesthetic. What do you like? Um, what do you want to build? You know, if you're building small projects, you don't need a giant Nicholson bench. Um, you know, you can make do with with something pretty short and pretty small. But the fact of the matter is, you know, I think a lot of a lot of hype um, gets made around workbenches, um, and yeah, it's nice to have a really big, really heavy, you know, giant workbench that takes three people to move. But the fact of the matter is, most people aren't going to be doing the kind of handwork that you know, unless you're 100% hand tools and you're doing a lot of planing on your bench and dressing your rough stock, you know, with hand tools. Chances are you're not going to be using that super solid giant heavy bench for what it was designed for. So, you know, just about anything is going to work for the average woodworker, I would say. Um, and, you know, whether it's a Rubo, whether it's a Nicholson, it really doesn't matter. All of these benches will work. So don't worry about so much about what somebody else is using. Look at the different benches, see what suits you, what looks good to you what type of bench you know do you like when you look at the bench what do you like do you like the looks of the nicholson do you like the looks of the rubo do you like the looks of another bench because the you know the more you like the bench the more you enjoy the bench the more you're going to enjoy using it and the more work you're going to do on it so um, i wouldn't worry too much about the different bench styles or about you know who's touting which bench style this week um you know, just find one that you like. If if the lumber that you have fits a certain bench, if it fits a certain bench dimension, um, you know, just go ahead and, and get to woodworking. You know, I think the the bench is less important than I think um, a lot of folks make it out to be these days. So um, just go ahead and, and get woodworking and um, don't worry so much about the exact style of the bench. So our next question comes from Ed Savinsky. And Ed says, hi, Bob, there is a sitting bench plan in a Woodsmith magazine issue that I'd like to build. The plan uses one and three quarter inch thick stock. I was shuffling through a stack of wide white pine boards looking for one for the bench. I'm thinking about cutting the parts from an eight quarter board that I have that is about 22 inches wide and a uh, 22 inches wide and a tick under seven feet in length. But before I did anything, I just wanted to ask a question. I know it's very unusual to have lumber this wide. I didn't know if I should be trying to preserve the width instead of cutting pieces from it. It almost suggests a workbench top, but I don't think one and three quarters of an inch is thick enough. And besides, this is white pine, which seems like it would be too soft for a workbench. I know there's probably no right or wrong answer here, but I wanted to have your opinion before proceeding. If it matters, I do have a second eight quarter board about the same width and three boards that are the same width, but a little less than one inch thick. Thanks as always for the help. So Ed, I, I I wish I had your problem. Uh, Twenty-two inch wide boards, eight quarter boards is is kind of nice, and I agree with you that at first glance it might scream workbench top. But I also agree with you that white pine might be a little bit too soft for a workbench. 
Um, I know folks have done it, um, and I know it can can work. And I know I just you know said to uh, to Archie that you know workbench wood and workbench type doesn't really matter. Um, you know, but I've been working on a softwood bench for a while. Mine's actually um, Doug fir, I think, or hem fir. So it's a little bit more rigid than white pine. And I've got a lot of white pine myself from building the cabin. Um, and I don't think I would build a workbench out of white pine if I had other choices. Um, so I would say, you know, if the, if the board you have, it looks like the right board for this bench that you want to build this sitting bench, go ahead and cut it up. I would have no qualms about cutting it up. You know, I know, um, it might sound like heresy, but you know, sometimes we can sit on lumber and sit on lumber and sit on lumber waiting for that, that perfect piece. Um, and what ends up happening is we, uh, you know, you either get too old to woodwork anymore or, um, you know, God forbid something happens and, and, uh, you pass on from this world into the next. Um, and that lumber just ends up either sitting there or getting given away or sold and, and you never get to use it. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm of the belief that hoarding lumber doesn't really do anyone any good. So, or except maybe the next guy. But, uh, you know, if I had that board and I didn't have a project in mind for it, I wouldn't hesitate to cut it up. The benefit of cutting up that 22 inch wide board to make your bench is that you're going to get really great color and grain match for all of the parts of that bench. So, um, because everything is coming out of the same board. So you're going to get the same stability of all of the pieces. You're going to get the same color, the same grain, and everything's going to flow together real nicely by building it out of that one, one thick board rather than having to pick and choose, you know, several different boards to get your parts from. So I say, go ahead and cut it up. If you don't have any other use for it, um, you know, go ahead and cut it up. It's unlikely that you're going to use the entire seven feet anyway. So that's still going to leave you, you know, some cutoff of that 22 inch board for other projects um, where you might need some, you know, inch and three quarter wider stock or, uh, or cutting it up for another bench or another project. So I, I would have no, no qualms about cutting it up. So I say, go ahead and do it. So our last question comes from Tim Morris and Tim says, I have a question about saw sharpening specifically, is there a different way to sharpen rip saws based on wood type? Mine seem to fly through pine, but poplar and other woods like walnut and cherry are really slow. So Tim, when we talk about sharpening saws, there's really only two angles that we're concerned with, the rake angle and the flame angle. Well, rip saws, for the most part, don't have any flame at all. You can add a little bit of flame, and some folks will say that it makes the saw a little bit smoother uh, in use, but I wouldn't use too much flame because the more flame you add to a saw, the worse it tends to rip, it tends to slow down and kind of feel muddy um, in the in the cut has been my experience. So I wouldn't add too much flame to a rip saw. And at the same time, it's not going to help your problem that you're having where um, the saw seems to cut slower. More flame is actually going to slow the cut down. So let's forget about the flame for a second. The other angle is the rake angle. Now, obviously this angle is what is going to then make the saw more or less aggressive. So the lower that rake angle or the closer to perpendicular the teeth are, the more aggressive that saw is going to be. The, the higher that rake angle, the more the teeth lean towards the handle of the saw and the less aggressive the saw is going to be. So 
if you've got a saw that cuts really well through pine, but not poplar and other woods like walnut and cherry, I would say that's probably pretty common. Um, now, I, I sharpen all my rip saws this, basically the same. Um, I use about 4 degrees, four, between 4 and 8 degrees of rake um, and no flame. And my saws tear up pine and poplar. They're pretty fast in walnut and mahogany. They start to slow down a bit in cherry and similar density woods. And then they get very slow in, in woods like oak and maple. Now, I'm not sure you're ever going to get a saw to cut as fast in hardwood as it does in pine. You know, the, the density of the wood itself just makes them take longer to cut. Um, you can decrease the rake to make the saw more aggressive, or you can use a, a saw with larger teeth, um, and that's obviously going to be more aggressive. But I think really any way you slice it, harder woods are just going to take longer than really soft woods. You know, you're going to run into the same problem that if you use a saw with larger teeth, well, that saw is going to still be faster in pine than it is in hardwoods. It's just, you know, the nature of a denser material. So the denser the material is, the slower it's going to take, um, you know, and that's just the, the nature of the beast, I'm afraid. So... Um, yeah, you know, decrease the rake or, or use a saw with larger teeth, but, you know, going to require more effort. So, uh, you know, I think your, uh, I think your experience is, is probably similar to what most people have with rip saws. You know, it's just the harder the material, the slower it's going to go. So that's all for the mailbox for this week. As always, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, you can leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123. You can also go to brfinewoodworking.com slash contact and fill out the form or send an email to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. After the break, I'll be right back with today's main topic. Hey everyone, it's Bob. I want to talk to you about a way that you can support the show without any additional cost to you. I know a lot of you already shop online for your woodworking tools and other needs. But did you know that you can actually send a little love my way just by shopping online like you would normally do. The next time that you need to buy a woodworking tool, book, DVD, or just about anything else online, head on over to my website at brfinewoodworking.com first. In the footer of the website, or on the right side of the blog, you'll see several affiliate links for Highland Woodworking, Shop Woodworking, and Amazon.com. Just click on one of those links, and you'll be taken from my website to the merchant that you want to shop with. Then just shop as you normally would. Highland Woodworking, Shop Woodworking, and Amazon will know that you were sent to them through my website, and in return, they'll send me a small percentage of your total purchase as a commission. It costs you nothing more than you were already planning to spend, but just by going through the links on my blog, you send a little love my way to help keep the show going. So don't forget, go to brfinewoodworking.com and click the affiliate links in the website footer or the right side of the blog the next time you shop online. Thanks for your support, everyone. I really appreciate it. So today's main topic is getting started with carving. You know, I know there are a lot of folks that want to try adding embellishments to their work or, you know, making spoons or something like that. Um, you're not sure where to start. So today I'm going to share some tips for getting started. So the first tip is to decide what type of carving you want to start with. And this, and, and I'm not suggesting that this is the only type of carving you're ever going to do, 
But when you're just getting started, you know, there are so many different options. And, um, you know, there are at times the type of carving that you want to do is going to dictate the type of tools that you're going to need. So think about the different types of carving and what type of carving that you want to start with. You know, do you want to carve spoons? Because you're going to need different tools for that. Do you want to carve in the round? Um, and when I say in the round, I mean, you know, uh, wood spirit figures and, and little Santa Clauses and, and things like that. You know, is that the type of thing that you want to do? Are you looking to do sculpture, large pieces? Um, do you want to do low relief carving, uh, which is typically the type of carving found in furniture? Do you want to do letter carving or sign carving? Or, or are you just looking to do maybe a little bit of chip carving, you know, to add to add some embellishment to your saw handles or tool handles? So figuring out what type of carving it is that you want to do is going to help you to decide which tools you need um, and, and you know where to look for that instruction even or what type of books to look at. So my second tip is to find a good class. Um, the best way that you can learn to carve the best type of class is going to be an in-person class. Now I realize that that's not always going to be available for everyone, but the benefits of a, a, a good in-person class with a good instructor is that the instructor can really watch what you're doing and correct you real time. It gets real difficult to break bad habits once you've made them. So if you're trying to learn on your own and you develop some bad habits, um, it's hard to, to break those later later on down the line if you've been doing things that way for uh, a long time, whether it's with your sharpening or, or with your carving or whatever. So if you can take a class, an in-person class with a good instructor, they can correct you real time, get you off on the right path, um, and I think your your learning curve is going to be um, you know, much shorter with a good in-person class. And really that goes for, you know, anything in woodworking, um, not just carving, but especially with carving, I think. Now, obviously that's not going to be possible for everybody. You know, there are folks that live in areas like myself, even that, you know, there are not good carvers in the area that offer classes. So the next option is to take an online class. Look at something like, um, Mary May's school. Mary May does some amazing. She's probably, you know, the best carver in the country right now. She's she's absolutely amazing. She has an online program um, and you can pick and choose. You know, I haven't been to her website in a while, but, you know, she does all kinds of different carvings on her website. And, uh, you know, it's very reasonable um, and she is a, a fantastic instructor. So look into an online type of instruction uh, like someone like Mary May offers, um, you know, but make sure that the person you are, um, are, are learning from is a carver and, and has good knowledge and good experience in the field. Because to me, carving is a bit different than furniture making. There are a lot of really good furniture makers. There are not a lot of really good furniture carvers, um, if you're looking to do furniture carving. So at least not a lot that offer classes. So if you can take a, you know, an in-person class from Mary or up in New England, uh, folks like um, Will Neptune um, or Phil Lowe, you know, folks that are experienced in carving, um, 
you know, they're, they're going to shorten your learning curve considerably. So, um, and again, the next, next best thing is online with a, a similarly good instructor. So my third tip is to get comfortable with freehand sharpening. Uh, I know a lot of folks like to rely on jigs. I still have a honing guide myself that I use from time to time for, um, you know, when I just need to, or want to be really precise with the angles, um, Block planes are an example where I will tend to use a honing guide because I want to make sure I maintain, you know, about a 25 degree angle. Um, and, you know, I, but everything else, you know, it, it, especially with carving, you really need to be comfortable honing freehand. There really aren't any good jigs to use or, or honing guides to use for honing carving gouges, carving tools. You, so the only other option is to learn and get comfortable with honing freehand. And if that's not something you're going to be comfortable doing, you're going to be have a hard time carving because carving requires sharp tools just like anything else. So if you can't sharpen, you can't carve. Um, and again, because of the shapes, the varied shapes of these tools, you're not going to find a honing guide that is going to work well for carving tools. So I would suggest getting comfortable honing freehand. Start with your chisels, your regular bench chisels, and get comfortable honing them freehand. And that will take you into honing your carving gouges. So tip number four is learn to draw. Now I don't mean that you need to be the next Rembrandt, but you should be fairly comfortable with sketching out and, and roughly drawing what it is you want to carve. You know, a lot of carving, especially in furniture carving, um, letter carving, a lot of times you'll use stencils and things like that, you know, or, or patterns. But in a lot of furniture carving, you're going to need to draw on non-flat surfaces. So in, in order to lay out the pattern that you want, you know, if you're carving a, a cabriole leg or a curved leg or foot of some sort, you're going to need to be comfortable drawing on curved surfaces. So it's important that you are comfortable drawing, even if it's not, you know, it doesn't have to be great drawing, but it has to get you roughly where you need to go. Um, so learn to draw because that's going to help you to visualize what it is you're going to carve. Um, you know, the, there are patterns that you can buy, but those patterns aren't always going to scale to what you're, what, what it is that you're, you're carving on. Those patterns are not always going to be appropriate for the style that you're trying to carve in. Um, you know, sometimes maybe you can just lay out with dividers and, and eyeball it. Um, I find it easier for myself to at least lightly sketch in some pencil lines where, you know, of what and where I want to carve, even if I am trying to lay it out with, with dividers, sort of, a, you know, like a Peter Follensby's style of carving, what he does in the 17th century stuff. Um, you know, but learning to draw is going to help your eye and it's going to help guide your hand. And the better you get at carving, the less you will need to rely on drawing on the piece. But no matter how good you are, you're still going to need to do some drawing on the piece and on paper to vi help you visualize what it is you're carving. And the more complex the carving, the more you're going to want to constantly redraw your carving on your piece as you're cutting away wood. So learning the draw is certainly going to be quite helpful with learning to carve. So my next tip 
is to not buy sets of tools. Um, you know, we all get into this trap with just about everything. You know, you see you're going to buy your, your first chisels for your first bench chisels. And just about all of us look at sets. You know, you like things to match. You want to have all the different sizes in the set, um, you know, because that's how they sell them. And that's how you should buy them is, is in a set. Um, you know, just as with bench chisels where you'll, you may find yourself just using a couple of the bench chisels in that set, carving chisels are very specialized, even more so than bench chisels, right? Bench chisels are just general and you're really only going to end up using a couple. Carving chisels, you'll end up using a lot. The problem is most sets try to, they, they try to put together a selection of carving tools that are going to cover a wide range of projects and they usually fail at that because there are just so many different sweeps, so many different sizes, so many different things you're going to carve that most of the tools are in the set. You may use a few of them, but then you're going to end up with three or four that just aren't appropriate for what it is you're doing and you're never going to use them. Um, and when you're talking about good carving gouges that are costing upwards of, of 30 to $50 a piece, um, you don't want to be, you don't want to have a, a three or four gouges sitting around that you have absolutely no use for that, that you don't use in anything that you carve. Um, you know, that's hundreds of dollars of, of, uh, spent on carving tools that you really didn't need. So I would say, look at what you're going to carve first, pick a carving and get the tools that you need to complete that carving and add tools as you need them for future carvings, because it's going, you're going to round out your, your kit, what you need for the work that you do. You'll round that carving gouge set out as you do more and more carving. If you buy a set up front, chances are you're, you're going to use a few of the, the tools in that set, a few of them you're not going to use at all, and you're still likely going to need to add to that set because there's probably going to be some tools that are missing from that set that you will need. So just start out, buy the tools that you need for the carving that you're going to work on first, and then each time you work on a new carving, if you need new tools, go ahead and add them. And over time, you're going to find that um, your your carving tool set will grow and grow and grow uh, until you have more carving tools than you know what to do with. So avoid sets um, and just buy the tools as you need them. So my next tip is to practice on easy to carve woods. Um, basswood is probably the most common wood used for carving because it, it has no real pronounced grain. So not that you can cut it in either direction, okay? It has grain, so it's going to teach you, you know, to carve downhill and to carve with the grain. But what I mean by no pronounced grain is that visually, it really doesn't have much pronounced grain. It's almost like, you know, carving a, a, a block of, of completely white styrofoam, right? With grain. So there's no, you don't really see patterns between um, early and late wood between the growth rings. Um, the color is very consistent throughout. The density is very consistent throughout. You don't have the problem like soft woods where you have really soft um, early wood and really hard late wood. Um, you don't have really 
um, defined grain structure um, or visually to uh, to get in the way visually like something like oak has very strong grain um, you know so you're usually carving on like a a riven surface or something you know with a very straight grain when you're working with oak so that the cathedral grain doesn't um, doesn't compete with the carving itself basswood basically has no grain um, no no visual grain so and it's very easy to carve you know, like I said it's 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 a hardwood but it's very soft in terms of its density so it carves really beautifully um, it will require sharp tools again because it is soft in order to cut it cleanly and not get fuzzies but it does carve very beautifully it carves very easily um, and it's going to be it's a good wood to practice on it's not going to make the best wood for usable and you know usable items so if you want to uh, carve spoons to use to actually use basswood's probably not the best choice but it's a great wood to carve your first couple spoons out of just to get the feel for the process and the and the design and and how things go together so do some practice carving on some easy to carve woods like basswood um, it's it's soft visually it's not going to compete with the carving um, it's easy to carve and it's fairly inexpensive so you know you can get very large pieces of basswood for for very little money so practice on basswood before you move on to your furniture woods or your spoon woods or your bowl woods or whatever it is you're going to carve the finished piece out of so my next tip is to study pictures you know pictures just like drawing will tell you a lot when you're when you're actually studying the picture don't just look at a picture and say I want to carve that look at the details look at the shadows and that's going to tell you a lot about the highs and lows and and how things go together in that carving if you look at a lot of um, furniture carvings and you really study them closely you'll see you know there'll be leaves or vines or, or whatever it is that's carved into that piece flowing under and around each other so it's not just you know this this representation of leaves you'll actually see a flow to how the artist carved the piece and Mary May is really good at explaining this and 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 doing this and her carvings you'll see a lot of this especially things like acanthus where you know one piece will go under one one leaf will go under the other um, and then back over another one right so really study the pictures to see that and it's going to help you understand where your low spots and your high spots are in your carving so that you can defi better define those shadow lines and, and show more movement you know a, a flat carving of a leaf is nice but it's even more visually interesting when you can show some flow where you have you know sections going behind other sections and and really show that in detail um, and that's sort of that next level of carving once you once you have that flat low relief to start adding depth um, and and studying pictures and old furniture and old carvings and things like that uh, really will really help with your visualization of what it is you're going to carve and then finally my last tip do it as often as you can you know I'm guilty of not carving pretty much at all anymore um, years ago I, I did a lot of carving um, I really wanted to get good at 
period carving. And I was doing a lot of it just practicing and, and building the occasional period piece with some carving. Um, and I got away from it a bit myself. So these days when I try to do some carving, you know, I can feel my, my hands are not quite as practiced. My eye is not quite as practiced. And a lot of times today, the pieces that I carve are not quite as good as they were a few years ago, just because I'm, I don't have the practice and my eye is out of practice. So, um, I would suggest, you know, if you're really serious about learning to carve, do it as often as you can. Um, the more you do it, the easier it's going to come to you, the more fluid your emotions will, will get. And that's a big thing in carving is to, is for your emotions to be very fluid because any staggering or, or any stop and starts tend to show themselves in the, in the carving. If you can fluidly follow a, uh, your gouge around a curve, the carving itself is going to be much smoother for that. And it's going to show in the finished piece. So the more you practice, the better you're going to get at it. So carve as often as you can, whether it's practice pieces or, or just adding little, little carved elements here and there to, uh, to your other projects. And the more you do it, obviously the, the better you're going to get at it. So it's a lot of fun. Uh, I certainly recommend that anyone who's interested in woodworking try carving at some point because it's a, it's a whole lot of fun to do and you could really get, uh, get engrossed in it. Um, if you allow yourself to, so I hope these tips have helped you and uh, will help you get started in trying out carving for yourself. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and for allowing me to do this because without your support, none of this would be possible. As a reminder, if you have feedback, questions, or topic suggestions for the show, you can leave me a voicemail at 276-601-3123 or by emailing a voice memo from your phone to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also use the contact form or the email address on the website at brfinewoodworking.com slash contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, you can find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt007. In the show notes, you'll find any links that I refer to in today's show, and you can also find links to follow me on all of my social media accounts like Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. You can also sign up for my newsletter to receive subscriber-only content, updates, and special offers delivered to your email inbox every Friday. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you have multiple options for doing so. You can become a supporter on Patreon, you can make a one-time donation through PayPal, and you can shop with one of our affiliates. And you'll find links for all of these options in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com support. So thank you again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp, everybody.